0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Maybe some of you have been following the Sunday morning talks, but I've been, uh, maybe since May, talking about these ten paramis, beautiful qualities of the heart. And uh, in the stories from early Buddhism, these are the qualities that the Buddha developed in incalculable lifetimes. So they always talk in these really outrageous terms. Like how many lifetimes the Buddha, since he had this intention to wake up and be able to teach in a way that help many others, then he had to, you know, live so many lives perfecting the kind of personality that would allow him to do that. And this kind of personality is described as the Parmes. So generosity, moral sensitivity, or deep valuing of non-harming, renunciation is the third, wisdom, um, energy, patience, truthfulness, resoluteness, um, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And nobody's going to argue with these qualities probably And what our job is, is to hear these teachings and maybe recognize one or more of these qualities that we just, for whatever reasons, naturally appreciate, value, recognize in others, recognize in ourselves, and just take it upon ourselves. It's like, I trust that quality and when I notice it in myself and when I see it in others, it seems like it's really functional. really helps a human being be a happy, good human being, wonder what would happen if I I made it a thing, you know? It's like we make all kinds of things, things, you know? One of my things is I really like green tea, and now I only like really expensive green tea. (laughs) Unfortunately, I've got a bad habit. I mean, if if I had thought that I would spend, you know, whatever it is, a month on green tea, you know, for my pot, my daily pot or two pots, you know, no way. But now I don't know what I'd do without it. (laughs) That's sort of, you know, my antidepressant and anti-anxiety and, yeah, just... I was reading, I don't know if you, anybody caught, Michael Pollan, is that his name? That last name? Mm-hmm. Pollan? Yeah, he had, oh. Oh. he had something in the New York Times recently and uh, he was just talking, he made just this offhand comment about the coffee break, the invention of the coffee break and how it was an invention, you know, corporate interest, like how to squeeze out a little bit more productivity from the workers. Mm-hmm. Caffeine, give them drugs. Yeah, so, that's what the palm going <laughs> to Anyway, um, I forget where I was with pronunciation, but...
2: <laughs>
1: but it's just, we want to take up one of these, and, and one of them like will lead to all the others. So, we don't need those incalculable lifetimes that the Buddha had to live, We just need to get really sincerely interested in taking care of ourselves. So whatever one of these qualities we have our own life experience has demonstrated this quality is helpful. This quality helps me relate, helps me see clearly, respond skillfully, and and in, in a way, in a sense, it becomes our superpower. And as it said, you know, with these, with these wholesome qualities, all the other wholesome qualities start to gather around. Well, notice that. If you really make, oh, now I remember, if you make generosity your thing, instead of green tea, <laughs> you always find your way back. <laughs> you know, and, and you make it a thing, like, you remember it. I'm the person who's interested in generosity and learning the difference between contrived generosity or wanting to be seen as a generous person versus uh, a generosity that's actually a kind of superpower. Meaning, we don't want a generosity that's like a ton of bricks. You know, this idea of who Mark is when he's generous and then we lug it around, okay, this is the kind of person I've decided I should be. And nobody wants to be around us and we don't want to be around it either.
2: Because
1: what we're really, with any of these wholesome qualities of mind, they will all have a taste of freedom. You know, That's what makes them wholesome, is they're not arising out of self-centeredness. So in, in sort of a Buddhist way of framing things, if something isn't arising out of self-view or ignorance, then it's arising out of wisdom. But wisdom, what wisdom means in a Buddhist sense is the way it is. So it's a natural arising. So when we run into somebody who's authentically, naturally, beautifully generous, or morally sensitive, or really committed to truthfulness, or has this capacity to let go, to renounce, to put things down, or any of these ten wholesome qualities, and of course you could divide it, you you could come up with your own list that may be different than the number ten. But what we'd find with these qualities is that they arise, there's sort of an expression of this mind or this heart or anybody's mind and heart when it's not infected by self-centeredness. So in that sense, and self-centeredness is that ton of bricks, you know, whenever... Even if it sounds good, you know, that I'm this kind of person, but if it's really coming out of a self-centered point of view, it's going to be a ton of bricks. It's going to be clunky, it's going to get in the way of relating skillfully. So that's really important. Even what we were experimenting with tonight, and, you know, you can share, I'll save some time for people to check in, and just using a kind of exclusive meditation object like just being with the breath, and really seeing, is this exclusive attention to something ordinary like breathing in and breathing out, and and to frame that as a willingness, like a superpower willingness, to not pick up all those things that I'm inclined to pick up, to worry about, to think about, to plan about, to fantasize about. No, honey, not now. Not now. Not now. Not now. Now, we could frame renunciation in a self-centered way, like, bad boy, you picked it up and you got caught up in that thought. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. But how could this kind of renunciation, just something simple like attending to the meditation object, coming back to the present moment, using this anchor, this this meditation object, how could that be an expression of nature, frictionless, open, uninhibited, unconstrained, wild, liberated nature? Because it seems, you know, maybe it felt that way at least in moments during the sit-tonight life, one, a lot of work, like I'm up against a lot of habit energies here to think, to worry, to plan, and you want me to come, you know, it can feel a lot of work. But that simple movement where we feel the impulse to think, it seems like, oh, no, no, that's nature. It's so easy for me to worry and to fantasize, and to plan. Like, to go with the flow would be endless mental proliferation. And when one thought stream gets old, we just, you know, we'd find another. It's sort of like hopping trains. Okay, this train's getting a little old. Oh, look at another train. And we jump onto that. And that seems fresh and alive. But we don't realize there's a sense of a mark, a sense of a me, that's dependent on being entertained by my thoughts. Or my, and they're entertaining because they seem to revolve around a me, the self-centeredness. And even though it seems like the easiest thing for us to fill up a day with mental proliferation, I mean, for as long as we've been awake today, how much of that time have we been lost in thought? A lot, right? So lost in thought that it didn't occur to us that we were lost in thought. That's what lost in thought. When you know you're lost in thought, you're somewhat mindful, right? It's when we don't realize, oh yeah, a lot of verbiage, a lot of mental images, a lot of constant mental construction formulations all day long, one thing after another. And we don't even sense the addiction to it. So when we practice this kind of, this is a very basic renunciation, where we're taking a meditation object and we're, you know, in a playful way, not in a self-serious way, it's like, well, let me just experiment just being interested in this one thing. And then what we learn, because we've made that commitment to just be aware of this one thing, then all those other impulses are going to keep arising because that's the habit of the mind, right? But we can choose to notice it's just a habit. That's just that impulse. It may feel like if I don't plan this out, I'm going to miss out, I'm going to lose out. But that's just that feeling. So I can be aware of the impulse. And in a way, momentarily, we grieve than not being the person who's gonna think that thought. Because that person who would otherwise jump on that and follow the thread of that thought, that person in that moment dies because we're letting go, the heart's renouncing being that person. No, no, I'm the person, I'm the awareness that's staying true to the resolve I made to be interested in the next breath coming in and the next breath going out. So, there's multiple little deaths, as we're doing this, if we're practicing well, and that freedom, that thread of freedom is realizing, I don't have to be the person who thinks this thought. I don't have to be the person who plans this out again. I don't need to be the person who worries about this right now. It doesn't mean I'm never going to be that person. It just means right now I'm realizing, it's an insight, I don't have to be that person. I feel the impulse to want to think, why is that person breathing so hard? You know, who's sitting next to me. And wanting even to complain, I could inhabit that space, become that person, but I don't have to. Because I can come back to the breath, to the meditation object. And it could be a very exclusive, specific meditation object, or the meditation object can be as wide or big as the present moment itself, whatever it is. So that would mean that the impulse is just something being known in the present moment. It's just another thing in the forest, the next thing in the forest. Now this impulse, now this impulse. Being aware of these impulses would be just as effective as being aware of the next in-breath or out. because. Then not hopping on the train is really realizing it's just another thing in the present moment. I don't have to inhabit that bubble because that's what I was saying earlier. When we're lost in thought, we really we're not aware that we're lost in thought. We're just gone. So in this, you know, we're going to be moving on to uh, next week talking about wisdom as one of the paramis. But it's really not easy to understand what the Buddha means by wisdom without understanding what it is to let go. And, you know, we can just do a little experiment right now because, you know, almost always it feels like the mind, in the way the mind processes and thinks, that the mind needs to locate me in the moment. It's almost like a dependence on a conceptual map of who I am, what I'm doing, do I like this, do I not like this, am I better than, am I worse than, am I the same as. So one way or another, our mind, our mental processes, because of habit, they're locating us. Give it location is a concept. You know, we think of here, common ground in Minnesota, but that's an idea. So we can just experiment now like renouncing location, renouncing any definition of self, of who I am, and any definition of who you are, or even any definition of what is. And we're not pathologizing concepts or ideas, right? Because we use them, it's kind of essential in a social context, that's how we connect with each other through ideas. But to demonstrate to ourselves that the mind can be unattached. So just, we'll just take 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and just notice the mind's relationship with meaning, location, time, these different concepts. So what's it like as we just reflect in our own heart not to need to be a somebody? Not to be defined. Because it's really important for us. One of the things that gives Buddhism, the Buddhist teachings, a bad name, is that a lot of the practices, which are really an exploration of where to find freedom, seems like a big should. Like uh, Ajahn Chandako arrived today. He's going to give a talk on Wednesday at six. American Pie. Dharma reflections on the state of a nation. Ah, Dharma Reflections on a Nation. So uh, it could be a nice program. You might want to join in. And we'll be feeding Ajahn Chandrako on Wednesday morning at 10.45. You can bring a dish to share. It'll be a nice community event. We let the monk, Buddhist monk, take food first. And then it's potluck for all of the rest of us afterward. And we just have a nice conversation after the meal. So join in at 10.45 on Wednesday. It's just dropped in. But, uh, yeah, so as a Buddhist monk, you know, the shaving the hat and wearing the robes, and you don't really, aren't allowed any possessions, and you need to be fed every day because you can't store food on your own. So there's a lot of letting go, and it kind of scares us, that letting go. And then, you know, because monasticism is so... Um, You know, people just associate Buddhism with monasticism. And then we can judge ourselves because I've got a comfortable pillow and I've got this many pair of pants and, you know, this and i got that. And, oh, I'm so far away from this Buddhist ideal of renunciation. I might as well just give it up. But really, all ultimately we're renouncing is attachment. But we have to be curious about attachments in order to renounce it. So to skip a meal, you really realize how attached you are to having lunch. You know, no one probably is gonna die skipping lunch, you know, if you're gonna have dinner. But it's amazing what uh, a creative exercise that would be to expose, illuminate the attachment like I notice, and maybe this is part of the programming of being a white male, older white male. You know, it's like when I, because uh, I we had a board meeting earlier today, and um, you know, it always seems like I should speak because I know so much about the organization. <laughs> so when I have the inclination to shut up and let other people, you know, finish their thoughts or speak, it's just so interesting to notice. I I wouldn't notice, if I spoke, I wouldn't notice how attached I am to whatever someone's saying that, well, I want them to say it right. I want them to have all the facts that I have, right? And so, like that attachment, that's attachment. But keeping quiet helps me to see that attachment. And then I have a choice. I can be, I can identify with the thought, oh yeah, I really do need to interrupt this person and add this bit of information here. Or, I can skillfully renounce the impulse. Really, I'm renouncing the attachment. I'm going to feel the impulse no matter what. So, it's not about repressing the impulse. It's like choosing, like, yeah, there's this impulse. It feels like this. I'm, in a sense, totally inhabiting what it feels like to have the impulse to interrupt this person. But wow, it's a superpower to be able to renounce that impulse, to just feel it. There's so much freedom in not having to do everything I have the impulse to do. I'm sure, I'm guessing at least, every one of us would be in prison if we did every impulse we had, right? If we acted out every impulse, can you imagine? That's a nice sweater, you know? That's a nice cell phone. You look like a cute person. (laughs) You know, it's like, if we acted out every impulse, it wouldn't be good. So, to, to really begin to get interested in this quality of the heart that knows how to let go, but not letting go because we're repressing desire, but letting go because we know what desire is. Oh, desire feels like this, wanting this person to like me, wanting to have that, wanting to be seen in this way. Oh yeah, that's a desire, that's an impulse, it feels like this, hurts like this. But as a practitioner, well, I know how to be with this. Right? I soften, I open, I get interested, I release some of the armor. Oh yeah, it really hurts. This impulse really hurts. One of the things that you know, happens as we age is we realize a lot of things I'm not gonna do that I maybe wanted to do. And you know, we can't keep them alive. So yeah, I still might do that. You know, that's why we have a lot of things in our house. I, I might use this board. I'll just keep it in the basement. I might use, you know, we just accumulate a lot of things because it's like all these possibilities of who I, I might be the person who needs this, so I'm gonna keep it. And when we give it to goodwill or bring it to savers or give it to a friend, it's like that person is dying. So it hurts a little, but we can willingly release the attachment to needing that possibility. And it's, it's sort of, uh, it's enlivening and liberating not to have to have every possibility open to us. I personally think this is the key, excuse me, one of the keys to a successful long-term relationship. You know, this, um, because it's totally contrived, When we say, you know, we're going to be a couple, and we're committed to death to us part, or whatever people say in the ceremony, or whatever kind of commitment ceremony you had, and you make that commitment to be with that person. And then, of course, attraction, sexual attraction, other kinds of attractions, that doesn't go away just because you've got the legal marriage certificate, or you went through some kind of a ceremony, we're still programmed, conditioned the way that we're conditioned. But it's... And then if we are afraid of attraction, then we might, uh, by mistake, just want to repress it. Like, be afraid of it. I can't be honest about it. Because if I look at that, I'm going to, I might, you know, take that pathway or whatever. But that's a lot of suffering, because basically we have to hide from some part of what this is, as if it doesn't belong, you know, which is crazy and painful. So renunciation isn't being in denial or being repressed. It's really inhabiting everything. Because I know what it feels like to feel attraction, to feel repulsion, to feel everything that humans feel. But I know how to feel it. I know how to be with it. I know how to be honest with it. How to let it move through. Because, you know, it lasts for a while and then it moves on, like everything. And then I have this, like this contentment I can be content with what I have, and it doesn't mean that having that wouldn't be wonderful, it just means I'm content with what I, I know how to be content with what I have, so I'm able to let go. And the thing is, if I'm always wondering each time I'm around someone that I feel some attraction toward, you know, well maybe this would be better well, how is that going to work with the relationship that we're in? Not very good. Right? Always thinking about other possibilities. And the thing about realizing, like, well, maybe this Buddhist meditation center is good enough. There may be better Buddhist meditation centers in town, but maybe it just needs to be good enough. Now, we wouldn't say that it was my anniversary on Saturday, yesterday. You know, I would, you know, you know what, when? <laughs> You've been good enough. (laughs) Good enough to commit to. But actually, that would be a beautiful aspiration, to have the kind of relationship where you could say that to the person. And Wynn and I have said something similar. Like It's like, uh, it makes sense to really dig in here. It makes sense to let the idea that there's a better person... Those impulses, when they arise, to let them be there and then die to the lack of identification, the lack of believing that that's true. It doesn't mean that we don't know, but it, it just means that pragmatically, it's really useful to know how to let go. Maybe the car we have is good enough, the cell phone we have is good enough. Maybe, this is really amazing, The personality we have is good enough. So if we take up some self-improvement project, totally fine, but we don't have to because this personality is okay enough to live the rest of my life with. So I might do a self-improvement project, you know, and work on this or that, but I'm doing it because it's a joy to do it, not because I have to. Maybe living in Minneapolis is good enough, you know? Always wonder, like, is Duluth the next Aspen? <laughs> you ever wonder, like, this would be the time to figure out, like, Boulder or Aspen or Berkeley, California, these places that are really hot now. If only I'd known about it. Back, like, I, one of my roommates, I lived in Berkeley in the early 80s, and one of my roommates... Uh, Bought a tiny house for an exorbitant amount of money in a not so good neighborhood in Oakland back then, and uh, it's just like, ah, oh. but now of course it's worth a total fortune because <laughs> it's you know it's right in the hub of the Bay Area. So it's like, oh yeah, this is nice. Seward neighborhood's pretty good, but where's where's the next spot? <laughs> and it's it's like this is in Buddhism we call. Becoming, becoming energy, right? We're addicted, we're attached to becoming somebody, always on the way to becoming who we think we should be and therefore never really being who we are in this moment. And the thing is about becoming energy, whenever there's any kind of becoming energy, then, like, when we make something up, then something has to be down. So if I have some image of who I want to be, then this is not okay. This moment is not okay. Because it's not who I want to be. And then there's some tension here. There's some aversion here. And fear that I'm not going to get there. So we've just... Becoming is that root cause. So you see why... This, even the beginnings of renunciation were really playing with the deepest insight. Like, can it really be okay to be me? Or do we have to become enlightened? You know, and then we got this, that's that image out there. You know, walk on water, glow in the dark, whatever you think that means. And this is like a really, uh, for me, and I, I'm guessing for maybe all, even all of us, a really useful place to explore. Because it we need, one way or another, we have to tease out this uh, perfection. It's really like a cult of perfectionism, becoming perfect, which, you know, really doesn't work well with the aging process. And... Uh, I mean, in all kinds of ways. Not only does the body, you know, become softer and rounder, and but the mind becomes less clear. <laughs> I mean, I, I have excuses. I've done a really busy day, but I, I drove home after the board meeting, and uh, <laughs> I left my car on, keys in the car running. Had no idea until I was leaving to come here, and wondering, and I never lose my keys. Because I'm like, Where are my keys? <laughs> Look all through the house, when was looking? Well, maybe I left them in the car. Uh, but it never occurred to me that I would have left my car running. <laughs> it's a hybrid, so it, you don't hear it when you're in the car, you know, so I have some excuse. But, and th- not only that, I mean, what really makes it amazing is like last night because I had left my car unlocked, somebody went through the car, you know, looking for things. I don't keep anything in the car to still, just in front of my home. Um, You know, so it was like all the stuff from my glove compartment was all over. Um, So, you know, I had all the more reason to remember to shut my car off and to lock it before going in the house. So this is the humiliation of getting older. And then if we think that Buddhism is all about you know, this sort of profound clarity, this sort of seamlessness of mindfulness, you know. Then, seeing the mind do something like that can be really frightening, because it seems very different than who I want to become. Seamless mindfulness, no mistakes. And I think one of the real fruits of mindfulness, or just generally the Dharma practice I've been doing, is like, I don't think... It was like, I wanted to tell when when I found out, because it was funny. There was no shame, there was no humiliation, no concern about Alzheimer's, even though it's in my family. I mean, not that that's not true, or wouldn't be possible. It's, you know, it's not more... It's more than possible. It's given my genetics, or what's happened with others, other elders in my family. You know, it's a real possibility. But it's like... I'm really working on not having a problem with the present moment. Because I've learned it hurts. Whenever the mind has a problem with the present moment, it's this. It's a tense grip. Because I don't want this, I want whatever the mind might imagine is better than this. But you see, that's so different than a lot of our conceptions of the spiritual path, which tend, you know. And especially because, you know, common not that special, but you see the cathedrals in Europe or the, the amazing Buddhist stupas in Burma or Thailand or other places, other Buddhist countries, or wherever you go. We I uh, went ahead had to do some research in Turkey. We saw some of the amazing mosques uh, in Turkey and uh, Istanbul. And, uh, you know, it's just, they're so... they they evoke the sense of, I'm just this feeble, imperfect human being, but I'm going to become, or I'm going to associate with something that is perfect. And uh, maybe it'll rub off on me, or somehow by association, I'll be good, or I'll be saved. But the, the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, that's different than that. And it's not that people... Practicing don't develop impressive qualities. They do. But those impressive qualities become an edge in their Dharma practice. Like, how not to become um, conceited and proud and addicted to whatever mental qualities, beautiful, powerful mental qualities that develop. Like, a lot of people want to become psychic. Well, it'd be very easy to get conceited if you were psychic, right? Or just even, you know, having a lot of intuition, where you can read people really easily, you know? You start to feel like above it all, better than. And that's a cause for suffering. It isn't a cause for happiness, thinking you're better than. In fact, any of those conceits are problematic. Oh no, we're all the same. We can cling to that just as much as thinking I'm better or thinking I'm worse. All of it's a trap. So this, this power of renunciation is really, maybe I'll leave it here and for at least for a while and see if other people have some comments, but just to get a sense of, of the renunciation And just play with it as a reflection right now, like what would I have to let go of to be really okay being me, living this life with this personality, with this body, this temperament, this messy world, this imperfect world, this unjust world? Maybe I don't need to escape. Maybe I could take my supplements, but maybe I don't need, maybe it would be even okay if the supplements don't work and I get Alzheimer's or I get heart disease or I get obese or I get weak and have arthritis or whatever it might be. Maybe it's okay to be me. Maybe that's an interesting Edge for my practice to, instead of becoming perfect, relaxing being me. And I'll just give it a story about that. Um, maybe some of you have had the good fortune to listen to some of Ruth Denison's teaching. She's passed away. Maybe I don't know, four years ago, or so. She was one of the early uh, Western Buddhist teachers, and she her teacher was a Burmese well-known Burmese teacher, and she came back to the West and started teaching. She was uh, born in Germany, I believe, and... uh, But boy, and Ruth would probably be the first one to say that she was a character. She was a piece of work, outrageous person. And... uh, and her retreats were really out there. <laughs> they were unlike any other Buddhist retreats. We brought her to Minnesota a couple times to lead retreats in the mid-90s and 1990s. And I remember after the uh, retreat I did with her, I, I had to leave a couple hours early and I just happened to pass her before I was all packed up and ready to leave. And, and I, I just wanted, I, I felt moved just in that moment to just thank her. And, and I wanted to sort of be real with her because she was so comfortable being real with who she was. I would not want her personality. I mean, really, I would not want to be her at all. But she was so comfortable so being outrageous and kind of foolish and, and just sort of... And I said that to her and it felt so good to say, you know, you are so comfortable being who you are, and thank you. (laughs) I said something like that to her, and it felt really good, because it was sincere, and uh, somehow it just felt like uh, we were being, in that moment, real with each other. This was great. But she always, just one more story about Ruth, that someone told me I wasn't there, I think it was in Portland, she lived in Southern California, started a wonderful little retreat center in the desert, it used to be called Damadina, and now um, some people have taken it over, some students of hers, I forget if it has the same name or not, but they have retreats there, you can go there, and, uh, but she flew up. Her, her husband was dying at the time, were really sick at the time, and just busy, 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 old herself, mind starting to fall apart, anyway, she gets up. Uh, flies into Portland, sits down in front of a group, first night of a weekend retreat or something like that, starts giving a Dharma talk, gets confused, starts repeating herself. Some shuffling in the room, you know. Finally a few people start leaving the room, the space. And she kind of catches on what's going on. And she had the wherewithal in that moment to say, Stop! Don't you realize what an amazing movement A moment this is. (laughs) You know, a senior dharma person, dharma teacher in our community, you know, is losing it in a public setting. (laughs) This is an interesting moment to see, like, what does 40 years of dharma practice do for you when you're in a public setting making a fool out of yourself? (laughs) Don't you want to stay? Now imagine somebody (laughs) having the wherewithal to say that. (laughs) So we have about 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear from some people in the room. Nancy can pull out the hand mic in case we need it. But uh, yeah, questions of course about renunciation. But otherwise, just your own experiences or your own what came up from you when you were reflecting on letting go, renouncing the need, to be somebody else. You still may become somebody else, but renouncing the need that being dependent on becoming a more perfect, a better you, or something like that. But whatever reflections come to mind. Yeah, and you can share your name, if you don't mind, and pronouns, if you'd like.
0: Hi, I'm Ria.
2: Um, so something that came to mind when you were talking about the good enough or not having to move um, here, leave the relationship and things like that. Sometimes I do have challenges with decisiveness. So what are some ways to decipher when one really is meant to move or end a relationship or when it's just kind of that seductive desire to become something else?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly the right kind of question for us to ask, because, um, yeah. So I'll just give you a few thoughts that I've used in my life, one, it, it seems that honest acknowledgement that I don't know and I probably won't know with certainty what the right thing to do is, so that kind of humility seems really important. And then once I have that humility that I don't really know, then I imagine, let's say it's two possibilities, this or that. Then I try to visualize and use the felt sense as I'm visualizing that as honestly I can. And I make peace with whatever that might be. And then the same with the other. So I've realized I don't really know. I've done my best to make peace. And then there's sort of two two ways to kind of get to a choice. One is that sort of like chicken. Well, let's just see what happens. Because at some point, you know, a decision gets forced. and, And then constantly, I'm the one, I'm taking the role of the one who's interested what choice is being made, as opposed to inhabiting that space, I'm the one who has to make the right choice. So I replaced that with, this will be interesting to see if I do this or that. And then the other thing I did, really with really important things, is I flipped coins. <laughs> but only after I'd done a lot of work at getting clear that I don't know, and really a lot of work at imagining. I mean, we're, we're going to imagine a lot of stuff, so let's use imagination in a useful way. Oh yeah, this might happen. And, and this is very much related to Dharma, because. Dharma insight is understanding it's a lawful universe that things unfold lawfully, so we can practice imagining how things might play out lawfully, and that without with humility, knowing that we don't know. Make peace with both, yeah, and then either the chicken, okay, let's see, or I really don't know. But the thing about flipping a coin or doing something like that is, you really have to get to this place where I know that I know, no, I'm okay with both, I'll turn either this or that into something wholesome. That's part of it too, Is like nothing, it's just the next chapter, it's just the next choice. There are so many other things that um, determine one's happiness and unhappiness that are more important than whether I marry this person or that person. Even something that's serious, or whether I marry this person or not marry this person, or say yes or not now. Right? That I can, like that confidence from our own life that the unfolding never ends. So even if we've really screwed it up and made a lot of so called bad decisions, there's always the next choice in this moment where we can start making really relating in really wholesome ways. So it, it takes the charge, because that charge that this is, this is that one thing that's going to change everything, like that's, there's a, often a lot of self in that. Like there's a somebody who can really F it up. Like, th- where does that arrogance come from? I mean, it's true, like, uh, um, I know a lot of people that have done prison work, and a lot of the people who end up incarcerated, you know, they can kind of, oh yeah, this is... But that choice was really the culmination of so much else. And this is part of what we're seeing. Like, oh, there's a lot in motion. And instead of trying to get it right, maybe I should just be reading the totality of this natural process I call mark. Really seeing the whole thing, the whole picture. Yeah, thanks. And other people might have reflections. I don't know if you have more to say. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Other reflections on this theme or other things that are coming to mind? Anybody okay being me? Not me. You? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. If people know Gabe Keller Flores, one of our teachers, and also our one of the paid staff.
2: <laughs> yeah. So
1: um, just just uh, sharing what came
2: up for me as I was doing that reflection on okay, being me, and um, yeah, it, it, it was the moment where it's like, oh, this this feeling, kind of this depressive feeling which I feel you know, I've felt throughout my life at different times Is that sort of the thing like oh, that, that's the thing you know, like the one thing that has to go away in order to be lovable or something like that and it's like oh, yeah that yeah, it was just good to see that and like, well then in that moment, you know, I could sort of open my heart a little bit to that, accept that a bit, and then yeah, it feels, felt like a little yeah, a little learning, and then I can be less sure about that and, and more open to to other possibilities and to, to living life. But it's yeah, it's scary. Those those places where we have certainty, I feel like yeah, they keep us from living in a more Real way, yeah. I was, and I was also thinking of that as you were talking about Ruth, and just that's something that's really beautiful and inspiring to me with people like that. Uh, so yeah, it, it also reminds me of Charlotte Jo Quebec talking about a teacher she had, I think, who um, I think she called them like the most cheerful depressive they knew, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just these these places, uh, yeah, where the heart opens
1: what it doesn't want to open to so that's what came up for me yeah powerful and just a takeaway from what gabe was sharing like just to operationalize it in a set could be something simple like when you're feeling at that more subtle yucky feeling it will be different for each of us but i think we all get to that place in moments Do I need to run from this? Just that sincere question, like we're feeling something we don't want to feel. Do I need to run from this? Other thoughts? Maybe you and then Tahaya. I'm
0: Jillian, she, her.
1: This is some not
0: quite related to what your question is, but I just wanted to share some gratitude. Uh, It was really emotional sitting down and just with everybody and thinking about all of the conditions that have happened, um, just speaking of you know all of, like the innumerable conditions that had to move worldwide for everybody to be here safely. Um, so that was just really moving in my heart as, as we sat and as we began began talking. So I just want to mm-hmm. lift that up.
1: Jillian Haya was going to go
0: My name is Haya and I just wanted to say starting from the very beginning of your talk first of all just to hear your voice was so beautiful (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I was aware of oh there Mark turned the fans down I'm getting hot in fact I'm just ripping right now (laughs) and I had the choice I said but well, you could go, you know, it's cooler go outside or you maybe sit right out there. And I decided, no, this is just how it is right now. And I'm so happy that I stayed because that was just a moment. Yes, I mean, I'm still sweating. <laughs> I'm still hot, but I'm so happy because I was able to be here and here and be with everybody. And I think that's really going to be something that's going to continue for me. I mean, I've been working on that anyway, but it's really nice to let go of those things that I don't like that. You know? And then I just wanted to share one other thing that I think, you know, sometimes we don't think of ourselves as, you know, these people that, why would know, someone like this, or you why know, am I loved, or why, and I have to share with you, this is amazing. I haven't feeling the the last few Uh, about a month or so and um, it's been six years since i lost my partner so there's been some of that going on but i've been getting letters in the mail from people telling me that they love me and that they appreciate my humor they appreciate my love they appreciate Mm -hmm. my creativity (laughs) I didn't know my address. <laughs> so sometimes you just have to be who you are and say that's okay. And thanks Mark for, for reiterating that because it
1: helps you remember that. Yeah, thanks Haya. We have time for one more. Anybody else would like to share a question or your own reflection? Hi, my name is James, uh, EM. Uh,
3: I came to meditation sort of during the pandemic, so alone, and with apps and books and and whatever. And something I've been catching myself in the last couple months is how big of a target I set out there and this idea of what I'm going to be like when I finally figure out what meditation really is (laughs) and uh, you know
1: well let us know
3: (laughs) (laughs) and I I had spent a lot of time putting a lot of energy into trying to imagine this big crazy future James and yeah stuff like what you've been talking about today and and starting to come to some more in-person things and coming to talk to people instead of just sort of listening to a little guided meditation has really helped break some of those walls down. Yeah.
1: Thanks, James. Glad you're here. Still time? Is anybody else?
3: Hi, I'm Justin. Uh, I liked what Gabe said about I think a lot of us have uh, negative attachments. Like, until this one thing is gone and I, I can't Are okay with me. Like, if it's depression, until that's gone, then nope, not gonna be happy. Uh, And luckily, I'm over mine. I mean, I had the same thing, you know. Uh, But being able to spot those right away, you know, with awareness is really helpful. And then you can just like renounce them, like, you get faster and faster and faster. And, you know, because everyone seems to do some version of that. until I have enough money, until I'm doing what I want, until I have enough friends, until blah blah You know, it's just endless proliferation. And once you realize this, I think until you see how you're suffering from it, then you can't drop it because it seems real. And you can't really feel what an illusion it is until like you realize, uh, oh, I didn't get that other thing that I thought I couldn't be happy with and I'm happy anyway. So I guess that wasn't really true. And then you start getting a little bit of that uh, wisdom. But but I learned that from coming here, so. Yeah, and
1: paying attention to your life. Yeah. It's, life teaches us. Yeah, if you're paying attention, yeah. If you're paying attention, yeah. That's a good note to end on. Let's just take a moment and let go of the words. Maybe pass it back to Nancy. We've been practicing, sharing the merit of our practice. It's a tradition where we're taking some time and just appreciating our life. It's not that it's perfect, but there are beautiful qualities, beautiful moments, moments of patience, moments of real kindness and love and compassion, moments of clarity, moments of fearlessness. It's really useful to appreciate this life. Even the simple intention that got us all here tonight, thats probably was a beautiful, wholesome intention. And then we sense the goodness of all of this and we dedicate it. May the goodness in my life, all the blessings in my life, all the moments of clarity and goodness, may all of this goodness be happily dedicated be a cause for happiness for my parents, for all my loved ones, all my teachers and benefactors and dear ones. May all the goodness in my life support the well-being of all beings without any exceptions. May I live this life as a gift, sharing all the blessings for all beings. May all beings receive the blessings of my life. So I just encourage folks to play with that sharing of the merit, like just make it your own before you go to bed, when you get up in the morning, something like that, where you really take a few minutes and just think, oh yeah, there is some goodness in my life, and I want to give it away. I want to dedicate it so that I see it as a support for others.